Um, we're going to have you start off the show. Just uh, introduce us. And then, um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> we're going to start off. This is what's going to happen. We're going to start off. Um, we have a gentleman here, Sean. He's uh, on the job, actually, right now. He's got an announcement. Um, he's uh, He works with us. He, he's in charge of our social media. And okay. he's also... All right, Mark, Mark to, tell, to tell you the truth, we are uh, we are live right now. Okay, so we're going to just do it. This is, uh, this is a different version of Police Off the Cuff. We're going to call this one, what do you think, Bill? Midday with Police Off the Cuff. Because, uh, not after hours, before hours. Yeah, before. Way I, before. I thought it before hours, but then I was like, ah. <laughs> we're, so, night, we're night urchins. There's no reason we should be up even at this hour, you know? Lunchtime with POC. <laughs> we're having coffee today instead of drinks. I don't know if we'll, uh, have, any, if we'll have any audience, though, you know? But, we, have a, we have a great guest, an author, Brian McDonald. He wrote the book, My Father's Gun. We have Sean um, Linsko. He's... Uh, He's got an announcement to make. I'm Mark DeMeo. This is my partner, Bill Cannon. And uh, this is Police Off the Cuff. Lunchtime, Police Off the Cuff. Lunchtime. <laughs> we got the early meal today. This is like going to a bar after a midnight tour, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so uh, Sean, what brings you here today? Uh, so I just wanted to come on today. We had the uh, Mocha Mania Fitness Challenge going on this weekend. Uh, today's the last day of it. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the passing of Detective Ryan Mokian. Uh, last time I came on, I was hoping to come on and show off some of the shirts and merchandise that are being sold. Uh, it just came to me yesterday, so I want to show it off now. Everyone can go. I'm going to post it on the Instagram, or right now, if you want to go visit uh, No Matter What Apparel, this is what they're selling for the Mocha Mania Challenge. Oh, wow. Uh, pretty nice. Uh, they got this men's, women's, and kids. Uh, on the back, we got a lot of sponsors for anyone who's kind of in the upstate Westchester or Putnam region. If you recognize any of them, please go, please visit, please help them out. They're doing a lot of great work for a line of duty family right now that could really Sean, use a lot can let me ask you something. Can that shirt handle 18-inch guns? Well, you're going to have to buy one and find out, Bill. <laughs> well, I have to cut a hole in the sleeve. To... Well, then rip it down the center and then buy another one. That would be a great help. I was actually watching the, um, the workouts, the Team McLean uh, workouts, on social media and uh it, it looked like it was something special man and uh i was very happy that this thing took off and and all the people that that were out there exercising and uh on his behalf so that was beautiful where can they go to find this uh, merchandise uh so you can look up uh, no matter what apparel you can go to uh, which is a website normal website you can go to the team mokeen instagram page i'm going to post it up on the story when we're done here and then uh, I'll post another link up on our Instagram as well. All right, cool, 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 cool. And uh, stick around, Brian. You got anything else? Uh, yeah, you know, I was actually pretty excited uh, to sit here and meet uh, Brian and talk about his book. Uh, I actually bought the book. I'm probably going to get kicked off right now for uh, telling me, you when I bought it. his copy, see? And I just, <laughs> yeah. I just finished it yesterday. And I, I don't always finish a book. I always tell the person, oh, yeah, I read your book, but... Finished it yesterday. Oh, that's great! Thank you. You want this book back, Sean, or you got another? No, one? that's that's yours. Oh, I can keep it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so, um, let's bring let's bring up our author. He's the author of uh, My Father's Gun. He also has several other books that he's written. Uh, very uh, the 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 book is about uh, three generations of uh, law enforcement here in New York City, New York City cops. And uh, I haven't read it yet, but um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Welcome, Brian McDonald. 
Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Sean, for the for the plug. <laughs> oh, you had to blow the dust off of that book. I understand that it's been out well, for a while, but I'll tell you, I'm probably gonna get thrown off for dating myself here, but uh, I read your book when I was in seventh grade. Yeah, that happens a lot, you know. <laughs> hey, you did a book report on it too, and you got an F. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote it when I was in seventh grade, so we're even, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, guys. It's a pleasure. Well, now, the, your book was uh, published in 2009, correct? No, no. Uh, uh, the hard copy came out in 99. Wow. Uh, and, and, Even older uh, than that. Paperback was 2000. That's it was what I was reading. Yeah. yeah, that's different. 1999. Yeah, that's I don't know even if I was born then. <laughs> right. It's it's kind of dated now, but wow. uh, but you know something though, it still applies to today. It right. really does. Yeah. You know, history on the police department and in every other facet of life repeats itself. Right. It you know, sure does. I just had a chance to. Uh, to see to read what the book was about and stuff like that and your grandfather no you uh, that would be your great grandfather right yeah uh no no my my grandfather my okay my so he, he came on in like 1890 or something like that yeah. right? right when the right. city was uh you know municipalities and the and the police was something brand new and, and and fighting uh you know combating corruption with tammany hall and stuff like that but it's funny the first thought in my head was when your grandfather was probably on the job and then they had a new recruit class coming in, he probably told one of the recruits, I can't believe you took this job. It's going to shit. <laughs> <laughs> right? In 1890-something, somebody first uttered the words, this job is going to shit. I, I, I could see back then if they went into like a, a bodega or a deli or something and they tried to charge him, they probably clubbed the guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they charge him, shit, they pay me nothing to do this job. Everything's OTA. Yeah, everything was on the arm back there. That was one of my favorite parts about writing it was doing the research. And I got no help from the uh, uh, from the police department, by the way. I mean, on that part of it, they they helped. They had no records about my grandfather's time. And in, in the uh, I got one 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 uh, one page letter from them about his whole career. But uh, through city archives and other records and newspapers and family stories and stuff, I was able to stitch something together. And it was a wild time to be a New York City police officer. I'll tell you, it was. You couldn't even check the, <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't check the video. Couldn't check the video. Yeah, there were no body cameras back then. <laughs> I tell you, the uh, uh, one. What, there's a story about. Uh, um, William McKinley was the president and he got clubbed one time. He was at a protest and he got clubbed. By I read that that was great. I wish they could get fucking clubbed, you know? Yeah, he said, he said don't County you know who that guy is? I don't care who he is. He's, he's got to get out of here. Clubbed or, but, uh, or just one of those huge cans of mace just the whole place up, you know? <laughs> But it was great, you know, and, and uh, it, it, you know, I, I mean, being a, uh, a cop's kid was always separate for me. It always put, I mean, I grew up in Pearl River, New York, and Pearl River, New York, uh, any of you guys know about it, was like cop land when I was growing up. There was also, and, and fun, cop land. <laughs> yeah, all sorts of cops. And uh, on, on the block that I grew up in, uh, there were at least five New York City police officer families, you know, and my father was a, uh, was a pioneer of it. He was one of the first guys. We moved out of the Bronx in the 1950s, and, uh, and wow. I was just a just a kid. And uh, you know, he was one of the pioneers of moving out of the city. But uh, 
it was it was it was all about cops. The Emerald Society. We went to pancake breakfasts all the time. I mean, from my earliest memory, we went away. There was something called the police camp. Then I don't know whether Bill you, you even knew about that. Well, I had heard about it. I you know. Yeah, I, it was, it was a camp in, in the Catskills that the cop families went to. Yeah, it was horrible, but it was wonderful at the same time. You know, it was really really something. So. <laughs> Because there was no bodegas around it to get shit on the arm. <laughs> you know, I, shit before they left. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about the research, and then you, you just, you, you pretty much answered most of my questions with that. But like, I would imagine you had to, you started off with family, right? Yeah. yeah. Them about grandpa and stuff like that, and then it was time to expand it and go towards the archives. And you're saying that there really wasn't much. Uh, much in the way of um, records and stuff like that about the police officers back then. What, yeah, were, you actually, what were you actually able to get? Well, um, my, my mom was alive. My mom died in the midst of writing the book. And this was actually, it goes, it doesn't go chronologically. It's my uh, maternal grandfather, my father, and then my brother. That's the three generations. So it kind of does a zig. And my mom was alive at the time and she had a great memory and she loved her father and being a cop's kid for her was big things. So she knew all about the stories and stuff like that. So I took it, like you said, I took it, I took from her stories and I jumped from there. I had been, I was actually in, in, in school when I wrote a proposal for this book. I was a bartender for a thousand years. I was a bartender on the east side of Manhattan. And late in life, I decided to go back to school. And uh, I was in a, a graduate school when I wrote the proposal for this book. And um, so- uh, You went to this, Columbia University, right? Uh, yeah, it was Columbia. Yeah, I went up. You were sitting next to all those leftists. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I write it. I write in the book. My brother was there when my brother was a rookie cop. He was up there during the uh, riots, the the '68 riots and stuff like that. And I could see right where he was out 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 the classroom windows. <laughs> so, oh my god! He used to call me. He called me a bomb thrower too. He didn't yeah, trust well, the fact that I went. There's vestiges of radicalism at Columbia. Look, they have Catherine Bowden's a professor there. Yeah, I know. I know, I know, I know. That was a, there's a, a circle of, I forget the book's name, but there's a great book about that whole, um, you know, the heist up the Brinks robbery up in Rockland County and right. how all of that came around. But, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I was in Columbia and, um, you know, one of the things that school did do, they drove into you that all of this has to be researched and reported. This isn't just family stories. You can't do it that way. So, so I did. I, I worked my ass off and, and, and tried to find as much uh, through city archives, New York City uh, archives and, and um, newspaper archives and other things to, to bring out. And, you know, there was a, a, my grandfather was a part of a rescue of a fire called the General Slocum Fire. Over a thousand mm -hmm. people died on the East River. It was like this huge, before 9-11, it was the biggest catastrophe. It was, it was a boat, a ship yeah, out on the water. A boat, it was out on a Sunday cruise. And they, my, he was working on the East Side. The precincts were different, not numbered the same way. So it wasn't the same numbers, but he was on, and they put the cop, they actually put the cops on boats and brought them out there to be part of the rescue. And uh, I was able to track down two women, uh, one woman that I talked to for the book. And then there was a, 
documentary made, the History Channel did a documentary on the book. And for the documentary, I was able to uh, reach out and find this other woman who were both on this book. It was 1904, this thing wow. happened. And they were alive. One was 104 years old and I interviewed her. And she was- Thanks to your grandpa, they were alive. What? Was she still alive? Thanks to your grandpa, they were alive. Yeah, they were, thanks to, well, the one, uh, the one actually was 99 years old. Oh, no, no, the one that was 104, thanks to my grandfather. He was part of a rescue. I found, it was an incredible story. I found out that, that he, the tugboat he was on helped in the rescue of this woman who was 104 years old, had about 60 grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all that stuff. And because of not, if not for my grandfather and his partner, a guy named Cooney, they wouldn't have, uh, she might not have, have paid lived. She wouldn't have lived past that day. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. I hadn't, you, you know, a lot, of, I've, Brian, my, a lot of the research you did, the police department wasn't that uh, cooperative, right? Getting you the information. Well, for his, only because they didn't have it. It wasn't like they were holding back. I, when, when I was doing my father's, I went to, uh, I mean, they were great. They, I, I got to talk to Safer. I got to talk, I mean, I got to talk to everybody. And I went down to, uh, um, in the basement of one police plaza, they have the archives room or whatever. And they just let me go. The, I mean, I, I, was, I was in that room for about two hours looking, looking more than that, about half a day looking for uh, stuff for him. And, and uh, I got a lot of good stuff on my father. My father's era was also a very colorful era oh, yeah. <laughs> of the police department. Your father was the 4-1 squad commander or the lieutenant, right? The 4-1 squad commander. Here, I have something I'll show you. Hold on. This was this picture. We took it right off the this uh, picture. It says uh, Frank McDonald, Squad Commander Four One. I don't know whether you can see it. Yeah, I can see. Wow. It. He was uh, he was hanging. I, I think it's the um. What, what is the Four One Precinct now? It's Borough Borough. It's uh, the Detective Bureau for the Bronx. It's their headquarters. It was hanging on the wall. This picture was hanging on the wall when I went up to do the research. And the, and the guy says, you want it? And I said, I don't know. My father would be pissed you take it off. He says, ah, we got another one. Take it. So he handed it. <laughs> oh, that's, great. that's a great picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't want to be a detective or a sergeant coming late or hung over with him as the boss. You know, <laughs> you know he was... You know, he was a different, uh, you know, he was, a, first of all, he didn't grow up in New York. He grew up in Pennsylvania. His father was a coal miner. He was, he was a different guy. If he wasn't a cop, he would have been a, like a college professor. You know, he read all the time. He was very quiet man. He wasn't like, I mean, he, you know, he later on in his career, he had a bunch of guys, they used to call him the Rat Pack and they, they would go on the arm all to all the clubs in Manhattan and everything. And According to him, he was in the copa the night uh, Billy Martin and and and, uh, and and Mantle got into a fight with the guys from the the, the, the half a mobster group. The guys. Yeah, the I read that. I read that story in your book. But uh, but he was more of a quiet guy. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't. Uh, you know, he wasn't your your uh, prototypical or stereotypical uh, uh, cop guy. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. I mean, oh my God, you know, straight and narrow. Kind of ironic that uh, that your brother became a cop. And uh, maybe maybe took after the maternal side, and and, and you you became the author because and your father, like you said, liked to read, and he was a quiet a quieter. Yeah, guy. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't. I never. You thought know what I'm that. saying? So you both took like uh, traits from each other, each parent. Uh, you know. I think Frankie, my brother, uh, you know, became uh, the best of all of them. He had a piece of every of them because he was smart, like my dad, and he was uh, he could see, but he was a he was an active. 
he was an active police officer. Frankie was an active police officer. And, and, you know, I know he's my brother and all of that. And, you know, you always talk highly about that, but I didn't, I didn't interview and I interviewed it a ton of people that worked with him. I, did, I interviewed no one who said that he wasn't uh, one of the best police officers they ever worked with. And well, he was an original street crimer, right? Yeah. He was in, he was in the original street crime unit. You know, was what, no, no longer. Was that? Yeah, 1972, uh, and sensational stories. I mean, they all dressed up then. They were all they all had costumes. Like they did the like deep they deep were show like. or something, you know. Yeah. Muggable yeah. Mary, Mary Glasky, right? Ma Muggable Mary was in that unit. Um, yeah, he he worked. I forget the fellow's name that he worked with, but the guy he could have been a, he he would have been an Academy Award winning actor. The guy had gotten mugged even more than Muggable Mary got mugged. You know, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, that's a unit that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it doesn't Shame, doesn't exist you know? anymore. He, he, when you when you said that you were um, they were helpful to you when you went to look up your father's records and stuff like that, um, I forgot. Forget. I'll, I'll get back to it. I had a thought there, um, and now, now now it was interesting. The one thing that uh, when I when I was down there, they had. Um, they had this one box and it was full of this eight millimeter film and it was surveillance film. You know, there was a lot about um, the stakeout squad. I don't know whether you guys remember the stakeout squad. There's a squad they put together. They were all upstate guys. They were hunters. They put them in, in these like um, uh, places that were getting knocked over all the time and they were hiding in the back. They'd come out of the They'd come out of the back with the, they'd have surveillance on the bodega, they'd come out of the bodega, the guy would be holding it up and they'd say, put your hands up. And the guy would put his hands up. I mean, they made so many arrests. But anyhow, one of the- one of also the, killed a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't gonna say that. I was gonna leave <laughs> It was you either, it was freeze if they didn't, it was boom. Yeah, because the, the, what would happen is the uh, robber would turn, turn around with the gun in his hand and they, right. they just shoot him, yeah. But, um, there were these eight millimeter films and, and, and they were surveillance films that the police department was making. And one of them was the surveillance film of John Kennedy's, John F. Kennedy's birthday party at Madison Square Garden where, where uh, Marilyn Monroe sang happy birthday, Mr. President to him. Wow. And, and out, of all of the, out of all of the thing, there was about 10 cartridges, that one film with Marilyn Monroe was missing. That went south. Somebody's got that in their pocket for posterity. So, yeah. Oh, the question I wanted to ask you was: um, was that the, was this your first book that you wrote, My Father's Gun? Because just yes. as far as access goes, when you go to one PP and you start telling them I'm writing a book, anybody yeah. can say that. Yeah. No, everybody can say that. You know. Um, yeah, it was, and that was definitely a problem. That was definitely. What did you have problem. to show them as far as uh, did you have to show them what you had written already or? Did you have yeah, to I, I, I had I had some hooks. I worked in a place called Elaine's uh, when I was a bartender. And, and when I was there, it was uh, there was a lot of, um, um, you know, uh, Bratton. I mean, that came later, but Bratton, Jack Maple, all, all of these guys used to hang out there all, all the time. And you know uh, where I was, Brian, when you were there? I was where? at Martio's across the street. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Brian <laughs> Martio's very well. Maybe not during the same years, but uh, <laughs> Martio's was we, we were the poor cops went. <laughs> we didn't rub noses with the illiterati in the, in the lanes, you know? So, so uh, I used, I, I burnished the lanes as my, as, my, uh, as my entree into this place. There was a retired detective named Wally Millard, first grade detective, right out, right out of central casting. And Wally <laughs> knew everybody. 
And uh, Wally, Wally was uh, very instrumental in getting me uh, contacts and, you know, saying this guy's legit and everything. So uh, uh, God bless him. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Wally. What was, uh, so you're working at Elaine's as a bartender and uh, you're writing this book. What was your writing schedule like? Well, I, yeah, I wrote in the morning. I mean, I worked, uh, Lane's was a late night joint. It went to 4.30 in the morning. It was, it was late. It was late. And it was right across the street from a place called uh, Rathbones. And Rathbones mm -hmm. would be, uh, it was a big firefighter's bar, fireman's bar. So uh, uh, one, one day I remember on St. Patrick's Day, there was a fight there and like three squad cars showed up. It was the greatest fist fight I have ever seen in my life. In my fucking, excuse me, in my life. The it was like an old west scene out of an old west movie like the doors opened up bodies were flying out they fought in the street for about 20 minutes it was the greatest <laughs> so, but then there was marty o's across the street on the other side that had uh, that was a you know a lot of cops hung out there and elaine's a lot of cops and you know a lot of you know brass hung out there but also we had uh, we had detectives the guys in uh, Central Park, when the Central Park Jaga case uh, happened, mm -hmm. one of those detectives. Robert Chambers. Yeah. Oh, no, he was the uh, preppy. Uh, oh, Mike Sheehan you're talking about. Yeah, Mike Sheehan used to hang out there before he went to Fox. He got a uh, job with Fox News after that. Right. And uh, well, what, well, what did you say? What was the case then? You talk about the Central Park Five then? Is that what yeah, you said? Yeah, the Central Park Five. Oh, yeah, because when you said Central Park, I, met, I immediately thought of Robert Chambers because I know that Mike used to hang out at the lanes and Mike is you know, went upstate and interviewed yes. uh, Robert's girlfriend. And right. he got, he actually got somebody to come and record it, video, videographer. And the story that he tells was he was taking a whiz and uh, in the bar, cause he stopped off to have a couple while he was waiting for her to come. And um, he just looked up and there was a videographer and he thought to himself, why don't I just call this guy up and see if he's available. Maybe he can come down and record this interview. And that, that's the reason why he got the job with Fox. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Well, that was, one of the, that was the, the thing that pre precipitated it because now they could use this footage as just as opposed to just a regular interview on a five, even if it was the best interview in the world. Now that they had her on tape talking and they had him and you talked about a detective that looked like came, came from Central Casting. Yeah, Mike he did. was another one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, it just fit. So he started going out and having drinks with, uh, I think, who was the owner? Rupert Murdoch owned it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, he started having drinks with Rupert Murdoch. And some people play golf. Other people go for drinks. Some people do both. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, he was great. He turned out to be a great reporter for them. He did a lot of good stories for him and, you know, could do the cop stories, too. You know, it's yeah, he hit that horse. <laughs> Oh, that's right. I think he was coming out of a lane. He lost his job. He might have come out of a lane at the time. We had a lot of that. We had a lot of that at a lane's. We had, I had Joe Pepitone in that in the bar one night. The last thing he did was he said, let me have one more. And I said, Joe, you've had enough. I don't want to give you one more. Give me one more. And I said, all right, all right. I give him one more. The next morning, the front page of the post is him standing next to a crumpled car that hit about three sides at a midtown tunnel going. going. Oh, oh my God, really? Yeah. I mean, he was, thank God he wasn't hurt, but I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Pepitone, man, a New York legend. He used to take his wig off at the bar. He, he wore a wig. You know, he was a big about the uh, hairy. Oh, now we got to cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he'd hang it up when he walked in? No, it just uh, it'd pull it up off his head, like just to make you laugh, you know. <laughs> I love guys like that. Those are my favorite guys. They wear it, but they're not vain.
Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like a hat. Yeah. <laughs> so did you ever write any stories uh, in regards to things that you witnessed or people you spoke to at Elaine's? Uh, I did actually. I, I actually wrote a book about it. it called, it's called Last Call at Elaine's. And uh, it, um, yeah, it was about my time there. It was about a lot of things, but uh, uh, it, it certainly it certainly had a lot of the uh, moments in Elaine's. It was picked up by somebody to do a television series. That was about uh, maybe eight months ago, nine months ago. And I haven't heard anything since, so I don't well, know. With the corona shutdown, maybe soon it'll be production will pick back up. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? I didn't know, you know, my father's gun, the, the History Channel called up, but I, I didn't expect that to do any, you know, get uh, be made into anything on, on television. And, uh, you know, they did a really, really amazing job on that. It's, uh, uh, it, won, it won a couple of awards. It did, it did really well. Uh, I mean, the way they shot it and everything. It was, it was, it was yeah, I was able to find a clip from it. I put it up as a promo for the interview today. Oh, really? Uh, the, the book is very easy to find. The actual documentary the History Channel made is uh, super difficult to track down. I've been trying for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it. Yeah, I know. I don't know why, you know, for a while there where you could get it on Netflix or one of these things, but then it only lasted a couple of. You never know. I mean, just if you really want to get uh, uh, talk about controversy, I mean, maybe maybe because it has the word gun in it, maybe because it has to do with law enforcement. Yeah, it seems yeah. like during this period of time, there's a lot of things getting canceled, disappearing, uh, w working its way to the back of the Internet somewhere. Yeah. You know, if you're yeah, not no, in favor right now, the powers that be can move you back all the way to the back of the line. That's true. That's true. That's true. What was it about Elaine's that made it so special? What is was it the owners? Why did it attract all these? Uh, yeah, I mean, she people? was a character. She was a big, big, heavy set woman. That's her. That's the uh, that's the poster up there behind me. She she was a big, uh, heavy set woman. She she was uh, uh, she was a, a, a abrupt. Let me put it that way. I mean, she just she didn't give a uh, of flying who who you were or what you were, she told you. And as a matter of fact, if you didn't eat dinner in the place, you didn't want anything to do with it, except for the guys at the bar and the cops and the firemen. She had she loved New York City cops. She loved the people that worked in New York City. She was like a Queens girl. She grew up in Queens, and and uh, so she had this real affinity for people. But for some reason, her personality drew these first famous authors. You name the author, they were there. I mean, from from Norman Mailer to uh, Kurt Vonnegut to um, Hunter Thompson to Joan Didion, you name them, uh, just an array of the kind of authors you, you read when you go to uh, a college literary class, you read these authors. They were there on a nightly basis. But, the, but there were also uh, movie stars. I, I, I served everybody from, from, uh, um, from, uh, Jeez, all the names of I'm going out of my out of my head right now. But uh, the Terminator, what's his name? Schwarzenegger to to you name it. I, I just served everybody there. So. so that was the deal. She wanted you to sit down, have dinner first, and then work your way to the bar. Yeah, well, no, I mean she was okay if you went to the bar if you were like a working person. But if you were a famous person, you came in, you just wanted to sit around looking pretty. She had no time for you <laughs> out the door. She threw people out the door. She was on the front page of the post for throwing somebody out the door. So um, she's um, yeah, she was a character. I loved it. You say abrupt. It. I just thought of New York. It's, New Yorkers have a way of they don't have much patience for stupidity. No patience at all. No patience, <laughs> no patience at all. And, you know, she was a big part of me going back to school. She said to me, I, I, I had been working there for about 
six, seven years, I was like in my, in my late thirties. And she said, what are you doing? She says, you're wasting your time. You're going to be a bartender the rest of your life. Go back to school, do something. So, um, so I did, I went back to school. Well, that says it all right there. Anybody who could just throw out, spit that out, spit that little bit of not, and actually motivate somebody to do it. Yeah. That's what makes her special, I guess. And that's what made the place special. Yeah. It made the place unbelievably special. What year did you go back to uh, school? I went back, well, I had to get my undergrad. I didn't even have a, I didn't have a college degree. I had wow. nothing. So I had to go and I went to Fordham in Lincoln Center. They had a campus in Lincoln Center. And at the time, you know, kids today, they, to get into Fordham, one of these schools, you got to go, you got to do a lot of stuff to get in. They don't just, yeah. like, but back then it was a lot easier. <laughs> they were picking people up off the street. I was one of them. So uh, I, I went to Fordham and it took me a while because I was working full time at night. Um, you know, so it took me a while to get, I think about six, six and a half years to get four years. And uh, I started doing some writing in, in undergrad. And my, one of my teachers that taught a writing class called, uh, called Columbia and said, I have a student that I think would be pretty good. Why don't you give him a look? And they, put, they waitlisted me. I didn't get in right away. But then, uh, then an opening happened and they, they let me into. Did you uh, have a hook? Someone make a phone call? <laughs> I could have had a landmark. Like the police department, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you had a rabbi. That's I a, had a rabbi, a literal a rabbi. rabbi. You had a rabbi. Yeah. You know, he, well, said, he said six and a half years to do four, and I totally get it. That's what it took me to get my degree. Some people call it diploma. I call it a degree. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it took me like six. That's the, the <laughs> six and a half years to get out of high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I knew that was a setup for your joke. I well, I thought you were going to laugh when I said degree. Uh, some people call it degree. I call it a diploma. <laughs> yeah, but you got a degree in life. There's a whole different story. You know, I mean, uh, uh, cops. No, Brian, I went, back, I went back to college in 2000 uh, to get my master's degree. And one of the big stumbling blocks then was that if you didn't have just adequate computer skills, you were fucked. You know, and I just basically was just learning how to do Microsoft Word. I was horrible at it, you know. Right. And just almost at the exact same time, I uh, went to John Jay. I got transferred to Homicide. So my whole schedule changed. And I was like, oh, shit, how am I going to do this now? You know, somehow I was still able to do it. But it, that was the hardest part. I mean, you, look, you probably didn't have to deal with computers. It was before computers, right? Yeah, I was like right on the, on the cusp of it. Like uh, in graduate school, it was like that. I was I used to kid with the people in class with, they used to say, well, we're going to Google it. I said, Google it. My Google was the guy at the end of the bar that knew all the questions, yeah, knew all the answers. Right. You know, he was the Google, you know? How long did it take to write My Father's Gun? Took about a year and a half. Uh, well, it took about a year and a half from starting to uh, publication. So it was about wow, that's amazing. That's yeah. fast. That's really, really fast. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to act like I'm, I'm, I'm really something, but I, well, I, write, after really that was published, I write them a lot faster now. <laughs> Brian, after that was published, were you banging cocktail waitresses two at a time? I, well, I had a celebrity for, I had about a, a moment or two with celebrity. <laughs> Believe me, it was a moment or two. I was back ten bar. I was back ten bar not too long after. I mean, I, so you went I, back to bartending. Well, i for. You have to read my. You have to read Last Call at Elaine's. It gives the full story. But okay, I I, uh, I made I made uh, I made a couple of dollars with my uh, with my father's gun. 
and it was more money than I ever saw. I had a lot of money in my in my pocket. I was a bartender, so I wasn't putting it in a 401k or anything. I was carrying it around in my pocket mostly. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I ask you something? When you were attending bar, were you drinking? Uh, no. No, See, that's, that's why you were able to do it. If you were drinking, yeah. you would have been finished. Yeah. So, so I had a big, I, 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 I stopped drinking and the, the whole point of uh, my father's gun is I went back drinking, <laughs> which was a mistake, but uh, I haven't had a drink in a while. So that's, that's that. Yeah. I attended bar downtown before I went on the police department at Pete's Tavern on 18th and early. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Oh, Henry supposedly wrote the gift of the Magi. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Come in the bar and go, is that the booth? This is the tavern, oh, Henry made famous, you know. They should it's say that about tavern. the names if it was still there. Yeah, it's a famous tavern. tavern. Then Brian McDonald made famous. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't I didn't get a I didn't I didn't get a lot of fame out of the whole thing. When when the um when the movie um uh, debuted on the on the History Channel. The first night they showed it, I was working behind a bar, and I had it on, on on a television on the bar. And somebody yelled at me to put the Rangers on, so I had to turn it off. <laughs> so obnoxious writing. You should have been like, <laughs> "That's the best story ever." Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. You wrote a book. Can you put the Rangers on, please? The Rangers. Mr. Big Shot over here writing books. I wonder what the Rangers. <laughs> Who was the best tipper? That ever came into a lanes? Ah, that's a good question. There was a guy. Um, oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, I, I can't. He was a, a produce, a music producer, very famous. Um, uh, Al Pacino played him in on a, a television movie. He. Um, oh, I know who you talk about. Phil Ronettes. His wife. His wife was Phil Spector. Phil Spector. He, he was the, he, the murder. He murdered his. Uh, right. Right, 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 right. He used to come in and it have, and first he was on something. He was circling around the moon when it come in. But but he would he would have like one or two. He'd drink uh, like vodka and cranberry or something. He'd have two of them, and leave five hundred dollar tips. Oh my hand to God, my hand to God. The check would be back then maybe it was three fifty four dollars for the three fifty seven dollars for the, the drinks, and he'd leave five hundred dollar tip. Wow. He came in, it was like nobody got served. Everybody, it was like moving. Yeah, he came in, you were fucking applying an alcohol prep pad to his undercarriage. He was spaced out, man. And it'd sit at the piano and it'd start playing and he couldn't carry a tune in a wheelbarrow. I don't know how this guy made all this money in, in music. He was he like- He was the uh, producer of the Beatles too. I know. Well, I did, well, his thing was he created the, the, the wall of uh, sound. Wall of sound. That's and it. Trapped everybody in this tiny room, and and the, the yeah. acoustics were bouncing off of each other. So when you said that he was walking around and it was all in his head, the way he hears things is probably different than everybody else does. Yeah, that's probably maybe, maybe he's just taking it all in. Maybe he's in another world. The shooting of that girl, by the way, he was a big gun aficionado. I mean, the guy always packed, always had guns around, tons of them. And uh, I think you know from everything that it says he. Well, he was like you said, crazy. But I, I have a feeling like it was an accident. He just pulled it out on her. Oh, okay. You know, that's okay. my theory. I could. But he was uh, always I, playing with guns. Anyone knows you don't play with guns, especially if you're drinking. You know, you don't you don't play with guns. You know? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was crazy. I mean, I had uh, he he was um, he was friendly. He became friendly with Jack Maple for a while. 
Jack Maple from uh, the deputy commissioner. And oh, there's Comstat. Uh, yeah, the Comstat. He was the guy that. Uh, he, yeah, there, the there was supposedly he wrote the plan of Comstat on a napkin in the lanes. That's how legend has it. Yes. Same thing that old Henry wrote, Gift of the Magi. <laughs> I'd like to see if they have a videotape to that shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, he wrote the plan. Yeah, yeah, he wrote it. that on a napkin at a lanes. <laughs> I mean, he was, a, he, he'd drink like uh, glasses of champagne. He was a very, uh, you know, he was an odd duck, that guy. He was a yeah, very maple. Maple, yeah. Yeah, well, he wore bow ties. He wore a uh, bowler uh, hat. Yeah, yeah. Humberg hat was his, and, and you know yeah. they said one time before, he thought he was going to retire before he was promoted to that position. He took a huge pension loan and he just stayed at the plaza, and lived like lived large for about a week or two. Yeah, that's right. Whole pension loan, just drinking and partying. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we used to when we used to come up when we came on the job. The old timers would say, "Hey, kid, take a pension loan every six months. It's your money. Don't leave it in there." That was exactly the wrong fucking <laughs> The pension pays 8.5% if you leave it in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old-timers yeah. like, yeah, it's your money. Take it out. We're like, all these old-timers wanted to be financial advisors. They didn't know what the hell they were talking about. They were all Wait, You know, it's funny you mention that. You can't even take pension loans anymore. I know. I heard that. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. I guess in the long term, in the short term, we're not a top pay. It's a struggle. Yeah, it's, it is a struggle. <laughs> I, I bought my wife's engagement ring for pension loan, so look at me talking shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be yeah. married, maybe, if I didn't buy her that nice ring. <laughs> you know, it's funny that uh, sitting at a, at a bar and, um, you know, with, with, with having a pen handy and some paper and, and, and jotting down your thoughts, and as you get more inebriated and you, your, um, your imagination starts expanding, you become more creative and you become uh, maybe funnier, but you got to write it down. You got to put it down. Listening out there and you want to write a book because the fun, you know, Bill and I are both comics. Uh, I've been doing it way longer than Bill, but you know, people are always fascinated by, by uh, com comedy and comedians and they're always asking you questions, but, and they always have a joke. Oh, you! I got this whole bit for you, and no, no, you keep it for you when you want to do it. <laughs> you know, and, but the thing is, with writing, I'm sure it's the same thing. Once people find out you're a writer, I'm sure they always want to. Oh, I got a good book, especially yeah, yeah, cops. Every cop thinks they have a good book. Michael O'Keefe talks about this a lot. Uh, that every cop thinks they have a good book. You might have a nice story, but do you have a good a good book? Yeah. What's the difference between having a good story and having a, a book? Well, yeah, it's the uh, that's a that's a really good question. It's like um, um, you know, first of all, it's length. You know, they 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 don't under people don't understand how much work goes into a book and how much time and and the structure of it and how you have to keep the reader interested through three hundred pages. You know, it's a you know a great cop story, and I I've written tons of them. You know, you could do it in three or four pages. You know, and then what? You know, then what? What are you gonna do? And it's also these stories have to fit into a larger narrative that you're trying to get across. You know, with me, with the, my father's gun, it was about, you know, being a kid, seeing this through my eyes, through an outsider's eyes, as close an outsider as you can to the police department, but still an outsider, you know, a family member. And, and to keep that going as the narrative, as the, as the camera through the whole story. So, you know, the, it's, just a, it's just a matter of how much work goes into it, you know. But I will say this, that... Um, you know, uh, talking to 
first of all, talking to guys on a job like like Sean is is always a hard proposition. I don't know whether it's changed today, but when you guys were cops, you, you, as a as a reporter, as an outsider, family member or no family member, nobody's going to talk to you. They're not just not going to talk to you. After they retire, you start to loosen up a little bit. And, you know, luckily, if you're lucky that, enough to get a few drinks in them, then they loosen up a little bit more. And I found that it was much easier for me because, you know, all of the members of my family were retired at the time to talk to the cops that uh, surrounded them because they were all retired. You know, cops on the job are very, they're a tough, they're a tough lot to break as far as an um, and you know you can understand it. They don't. You know, uh, they don't trust anyone. They don't trust anybody. Yeah. They also, do you really? You taught your whole time not to talk to the press. You taught not to tell this person anything. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know. Sure. I've been at homicides, and press was there, and press reported on the homicide. It's not even what happened. You know what I mean? They right. just made shit up. When they didn't have the facts, they made shit up. So right. how could a cop trust? Telling right. The stuff when they just make and then put your name to it and it's going to come out backwards right exactly right right yeah, right. yeah I like sean who's a young cop and he's an active cop to write things down and to have your own diary and keep notes i always wished i did and then people just tell oh you should keep it because you have some great great stories and i didn't so i'm now i'm getting to be an old fuck and you stop yeah. you start forgetting this shit and yeah I, Right. I mean, we've all had people come up to us and say, hey, you remember when we did this? And I, and I have no recollection, <laughs> but I act like I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, two things. First of all, Sean's an anomaly because Sean has the ability to actually be in the throes of it, be on the job, but also be looking at it from a bird's eye view. He has a good grasp of what's actually going on around them. Most cops, they get on the job and between the actual tour of duty in trying to still have this bubble and live a life, be it with family or girlfriend, whatever it is, you don't really have, you don't want to like take in too much. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, it's, it's just too right. much thought going about it. Just tell me what to do, where to go. I don't want to really have uh, to be conscious of anything right now right. or too, too conscious. Right. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that that's that's the reason why I think a lot of cops don't talk is because they they don't really have an opinion right now, and even if they did, who gives a shit? I got to go to work tomorrow. You know, right. what I'm we look at it with nostalgia right now. Right, we right. Look right. At, you know, standing at a protest and uh, because we survived. When you got to go and you know, God, these poor guys that got to go out every night now and deal with some stupid protest. Um, those guys. They don't have to. They don't want to talk about it anymore when they, when when they're home. They want to just try and squeeze in a couple hours of normalcy. I think the only one that uh, actually did it on the job was the guy that wrote Blue Blood. Blue Blood. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he he but he did it under an assumed name. He wrote he wrote a bunch of stuff for the New Yorker magazine under an assumed name. Are you talking about Ed Conlon? Yeah, and Conlon. Yeah. Who's, right. by the way, a terrific writer, a monster writer, very, very smart guy. Very, I, I met him a couple of times. Nice man. I've gotten to meet him too. Ace is a complete gentleman. Yes, yes. And it's a great book. Uh, Blue Blood is a great book. Yeah. You know what it is, though? If you're a writer and like he hit it under a pseudonym, but had people known he was writing that while he was actually on the job, you would have had a lot of problems. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because they would want, there's a lot of jealousy. 
people would want to shut you down. People would be like, "Don't write anything about me," you know, you know that kind of bullshit. But, Sean, is he back on a uh, is he back on a job? Is he in DCPI or something? Uh, he has a position with DCPI. Yes, that's why I met him through. Okay. Um, he's he's in the the PC's office doing some work like that. I'm not sure if it's exactly DCPI, but something in that realm. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, there um, was a sentiment amongst the job where, be careful what you say because. Unfortunately, if you have a bad uh, a bad boss or somebody who is uh, evil, really just not a nice person, they'll look to sabotage any good that could happen to you if they don't like you. Right. So you always, uh, you know, like, for example, what's your favorite day? Oh, I love Mondays and Tuesdays. Well, now you're stuck on the weekends, asshole. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so there's always that. Never tell them how you really feel. Because when I was on the job and I was a, a comedian and an actor, I kept it very tight-knit. I had a pseudonym, a stage name, because I was always in fear that somebody was going to try and take it away from me. And the irony is that they actually were so supportive and so helpful, and um, nobody ever tried to screw me over. As a matter of fact, they, they tried to make it easier for me to be able to do all these things that I wanted to do. I just wasn't uh, I wasn't aware of how 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 there was moments there, but I, I still didn't trust it. I just always thought there was going to be somebody who's going to try to screw me up. But um, my first part on TV, my, I was in the Warren squad and they, they drove me down there and I auditioned for Danny Aiello. And when they told me they got the part, uh, they were all waiting for me in the van. And I came downstairs and I was shaking my head like this. And like, ah, don't worry, bro. We'll get the next one. And I was like, nah, nah, I got it. And they, everybody was <laughs> what was the show? It was called Della Ventura. Like most of the TV shows I've been on, it was short lived. Right. Well, you had a big star in it. You if know? you book me and you're looking for another job, you want to you want to get out of this job, book <laughs> me for your TV show. I'll guarantee it gets canceled within the next that first season. <laughs> no, but did yeah. You, when you were doing stand up, did you uh, did you do material from the job though? Did you do? I, I waited until I retired. After you retired. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't want to get into it. Um, a lot of Rosario material on that. <laughs> Yeah, but also, too, because, you know, just with, with the audience or once again with the job. I remember when I first retired, looking in the audience, and I don't even know if I was completely retired yet, but I saw three suits there. And they were looking at me. It was almost like looking at mobsters, but they weren't mobsters. I was like, mm -hmm. these guys are on the job, and they're watching me, and they're listening to what I'm talking about. Because I was uh, the word must have got out. Maybe I'm just paranoid, but I'm not a paranoid person. Right. The word must have got out that I was I was I was doing cop material and they wanted to see what it was about. Because uh, I was on terminal leave. Not to, yeah, is that that's what it's called, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, three months there. Yeah, I, was, I already started working. Like in my mind, I was already retired. I remember being at Caroline's and seeing these three guys. I'm like, what are you what are you doing here? Like, why would how do these guys get here? Why would you come yeah. Yeah. to to watch a comedy show if it wasn't specific for me? And not laughing, by the way, just shaking their head, looking at me like. <laughs> Almost telling me we're watching you. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny you mention that. Um, a couple of years ago, I was out uh, line of duty. I got hurt in an accident at work. And, uh, you know, like if, if you're out, you're always nervous. They're going to come visit you. Like, don't leave your house, everything. Um, so there was one day I'm looking out my window and there's an unmarked. Um, I live in the Bronx. So a couple, couple of, uh, you know, houses down from me, there's an unmarked with like four cops sitting in it. And I'm like, are these guys really come to check on me? Like, I just got out of the hospital. Like, this is the first day. 
So I come out there and I'm like, are you guys okay? And they look at me and they book it, they take off flying. So I'm like, oh, that's weird. So I go back inside. Um, so where I work is where like, if you have a DWI, they come bring the DWIs in to get tested. So like a couple months later, these guys come in with a DWI and they see me and they're like, you work here? And I'm like, yeah, they're like, oh, they're like, we were supposed to be at court. We were, you know, hitting a meal over there and hanging out. We thought your inspections coming to bother us. So we took <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just an air paranoia around everything. I thought they were coming to get me, and they thought I was coming to get them. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you, you know it's ironic is that they probably were just uh, Midtown South or Midtown North detectives. Probably went down to have a drink and watch some comedy, and then you know while they were wor- waiting for their uh, the cases to pop up out of the, the machine, right. something I don't know. Brian, I want to ask. I want to ask you something relative to the book. The book is a big historical piece, basically, you know, your family coming over from Ireland, uh, your great-grandfather worked in the coal mines in Pennsylvania, right? Then your grandfather became a New York City cop, your father became a New York City cop, a squad commander, and your brother came on the job. So is that history, you think, still happening today with the New York City Police Department, or has that, that mold sort of been broken because of the way policing is, and that there's other things maybe more educated people might go into. Although I've seen, on my tenure, I've seen so many cops that had law degrees, cops that were accountants, that had all this other stuff going on, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I doubt whether it's a, to the degree it was. Now, I'm not an expert on this at all. All I can talk about is the you know, experience that through, through my family. But, uh, you know, as it happens, I'm writing a book right now about uh, the fire department, four generations of uh, New York City firefighters. No one cares about that. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So You're I'm not going to talk show. about that book anymore on here. But, but only, only in the sense that, to answer this question. And, and uh, you know, there were Irish Catholic family, the, you know, from uh, Ireland. The first one was the first generation and, uh, uh, in, in America and, and, uh, and on and on. But, you know, today and the kid, the youngest one of this family is now, uh, I don't know how old Sean is. How old are you, Sean? I'm 29. Yeah, he's, a, he's even younger than you. He's like 25, but that's an anomaly. that You don't see that anymore. Because let's face it, you know, you become a New York City uh, um, um, firefighter or police officer today. You can't, you can't even, you can't even, you got to stay on your mother's couch to survive. You know, you don't make any money. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't do it. And, and a family that has that many generations already in America, and then, the kids aren't going to be happy doing that, so they're, yeah. they're not to do it. And I'm sure the I'm sure the uh, the way police officers are treated today is, you know, I live I live on 89th Street, right down from Gracie Mansion. And during the protests after George Floyd uh, um, after George Floyd died, the, um, the there was huge protests down there. I mean, mm-hmm. huge, thousands of people right on the street, right on this very rich East End Avenue with, uh, you know, apartments that go for millions and millions of dollars. And um, out of the, the, most of the kids, I would say, I would say about 60, 70% of them were white and 60, 70% of them didn't live in New York. They, they came down from Westchester. They came down from Scarsdale. They came down and here are these kids yelling to cops. And, and you know better than I, the people that get that duty are all the all the right the rookies right out of the academy you know these these cops look like they were like 23 years old and they're screaming at them to fund the police to fund the police and what right 
do they have? You know, I'm, 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 you know, my brother calls me a, a bomb thrower because I'm, I'm liberal. I'm a liberal guy. I'm a Manhattan liberal. But, but, but what right do these people have to say that to police officers when you're, when you're coming down from Westchester, your interaction with a cop is somebody gave you a parking ticket some one day up in, up in um, uh, Larchmont or something. It, it, it just, it made me so angry, so angry. They really don't understand it. I, I tell you the truth, I'll, I'll say this and I'll probably take a beating for it. I think the millennials are the worst generation we've ever had. <laughs> I really think they're pieces of shit, really. They should be forced to go into the Marine Corps for four years before right. they're even allowed to open their mouth. You know, right. let them start going. I don't know, but I've been told. You know, let's, let's do that. <laughs> you know, let's come back and defund you, the police. You know what's funny about the, uh, millennials and Gen Z is that we raised them. Those are our kids. <laughs> the reason why they are the way they are is because of us. Right. And the reason why we are the way we are is because of our parents. Yeah, so just so take for example, when we were kids growing up in New York. You could go out and uh, get molested. To, as soon as you came across an adult, God forbid you were on an elevator with an adult, you were going to get touched. It's just, it just everybody got some type of sexual abuse story from an adult. Then anybody could hit you. Your neighbor could hit you. Your friends. <laughs> any, imagine somebody came home right now and said, Daddy, uh, you know, so-and-so's father hit me. What? But anybody could hit you and it was fine. So what happens? We had kids. We kept. Uh, we, we we went to every game because our parents never came to a game. We watched them like they were made out of uh, porcelain because of the sexual abuse that we remembered. You know, every single thing we kind of altered it, and that's what we created. <laughs> These kids, there are we. Those are our kids. The participation trophies because we used to stand in the sun waiting because one team won. And we used to have to stand there in the sun after the season was over. We just wanted to go home and play in the street. And we had to watch some other team get trophies. And we're like, this freaking sucks, man. I just want to go. I don't want to go to this thing. Some stupid dinner that you have to go to, you know what I'm saying? And watch all your <laughs> friends that, that, you know, get the MVP trophies and stuff like that. You sat there like an idiot. So it's we, we created them. You know what I'm saying? We created these kids. It's a, no, it's a it's time 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 time. What? It's a, it's a big time loser mentality. A lot of people, a lot of, you know, there, there are a lot of these protesters, they're, their hearts are in the right place. They see a lot of things are wrong. They want change. There's a bigger, purport, uh, bigger proponent of them uh, that just loser mentality. Everything, bit of success they have, you know, they always say, eat the rich, this and that. Like you said, what right do you have to tell someone how much money they can make? You know, go, go make that money yourself then. What's the problem? Why are you limit this? If you're saying limit billionaires, millionaires, at what point are they going to say, hey, this guy makes 200K a year. Let's trash him. And you're seeing it now coming into the police, a civil servant, you know, someone making a, a city job, you're paying half of that, you know, whatever salary you're making is going right into taxes, you know, and then if, if you're a bobo like me and you still live in New York City, you're paying astronomical amounts to still live here. I don't even live in Manhattan, I live in the Bronx, yeah. you know, I could very much easily go upstate, but I, you know, I work in the Bronx, I try to live here and live in the community I'm working in somewhat. You know, and, and you have people that come from all over the place and, you know, take this away, take that away. This should be free. You know, you just hate success. Well, yeah, but they have this this mentality that they everything should be for free. Yeah, you just hate success. One time and this kid, I was ragging the shit out of Bernie Sanders. I was like, how did this communist, how is anyone even listening to this guy? Yeah. And this guy goes, oh, we deserve comprehensive health insurance. I said, you need a comprehensive job, you little piece of shit. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> about your comprehensive health insurance. So you worked for about 20 years, you know? Like, you know, like, yes, like, yes, healthcare shouldn't be as expensive as it is, but so this doctor should go work for free. The scientist making medicine yeah, should yeah, work yeah. for free. That's yeah, preposterous. Well, education costs a lot, but also at the same time, it's like we're asking these kids, you know, they go on college campuses to get opinions from these students that basically they're to learn. Let's just say, for example, they don't know shit about nothing. And now you got somebody sticking a mic in their in their face, yeah. and they want to be on the right side of history. The t- the professor's telling them this way. Everybody in their bubble seems to believe the same thing. So why not we just regurgitate? I just want to be on the safe side. I don't want to make any enemies, and I really don't care about politics. I didn't give a shit about politics when I was younger. I didn't really pay attention to politics until I was three quarters done with the job. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's being asked to be. Uh, experts in what's going on in, in the media cycle that changes every five minutes. You can go on Fox News or CNN and see a new headline story every 10 minutes. Uh, so it's like, why, do they, why are we putting so much pressure on these kids that they should be so freaking informed or be on the right side of, uh, of their opinions? Nobody gave a shit what I thought when I was 18 years old, right. 16. And the younger you got, if you so were a child... Kid, you, that's what it used to be. It used to be like if I went to talk to my mother and she was having a conversation with adults, she'd be like, get out of here. We're talking right now. Like, I, like I, a young person had no business going and interrupting adults talking. And now we're calling them over. Come over here. What do you think about this? I want yeah. comprehensive health insurance. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being informed, you know, at, at any kind of age and everything, but people really... You know, there, there's one thing having a voice and what's crazy, what just seems so wild to me about these protests is like, Brian, so you, you, you know, you said you were in school, you know, during uh, a lot of the civil unrest in, you know, the 60s and 70s with, you know, the Columbia riots and you're throwing bricks at your brother out the window. But, <laughs> uh, but in, in those times, that was, you know, pretty much the only way you could make a voice be heard. You know, well, what yeah. were you going to do? Paint, paint the billboard on the highway and have someone see it? How else if you were just one person not on any kind of TV or had some kind of print publication to be heard? Now with this advent of social media, like I'll tell you, I was in college during um, the height of like Occupy Wall Street. That was right before I got on the job in 2012. And uh, I couldn't believe, I was like, why are these, you know, I understand why people want, you know, changes and that's a lot of, you know, financial inequities. But like, what do you really think you're accomplishing from sitting in Zuccotti Park in the tent? And then you have that small group in Zuccotti Park that are fighting for this. And before you know it, it's flooded with homeless people and EDPs. I'm like, you can go online. You can make, especially now with all, you can make your own show. You could do this, you could do that. You could have so many ways to get your voice out. Why in the year 2020, are you still out here smashing windows and marching in the street? Because you know what? to watch it. Nobody comes to watch you. The new, it's all about news. It's about mm-hmm. getting your, your voice out there in the media. Um, you know, my father, you, you said you were in Columbia. My father went to City College probably at the same time that you were in uh, in Columbia. And my father turned out, he got radicalized. He was, I say he was a communist, a socialist, an atheist, and on the unemployment list for most of his life. No, because the truth is a lot of these kids that we're talking about that are getting arrested right now, young adults, not just kids, but young adults, uh, they don't realize that they're fucked. They're on the list right now. Yeah. And uh, if Trump wins again, they're not going to forget. Those people are going to be basically unemployed. If they're not facing jail time, they're going to be unemployable. And if they are facing jail time, 
all that Soros money or wherever you believe this money is coming from, what are they going to pay your legal bills for when we got to regroup and fight again in four years anyway? Because I don't give a shit if you go to jail. I used you. You were a pawn. Right. All these people that are facing 10 years for federal offenses now, they're going to do the time because those lawyers are going to bail out as soon as that bill is not paid. Right. Right. Well, it's like that girl from the Catskills that very early on. Oh, right. The Molotov cocktail inside the police van where there were four cops in. She's she's going to prison, that girl. You yeah, know? As she should. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But they think that, oh, it's cool. I'm going to throw a Molotov cocktail, you know. You know, if you look at some video and you see somebody trying to topple a, um, a monument or trying to burn something, it like especially with the burning, I saw a girl, there was a guy trying to light something on fire and it wasn't lighting. He went to go get a light from somewhere or he walked away thinking that it was lit and it wasn't really catching the way this girl thought it should. So she went and she just pushed her hand into the into the piece of wood so it could connect with the flame and so it could get a better flame. Now you're just getting charged with arson. <laughs> that's that's arson because you made the flame burn burn high. Her face is on the screen. All these people don't realize how the police work. They get the tapes, they get the pictures, they put two and two together. You've been sitting at a home in your house going to all these other protests all around the country and then all of a sudden you hear <laughs> at your hotel room, you guess who it is. Three, four months later, we thought away you got away scot free. Yeah. And all these people are bugging out. Like, how come they're letting them out of jail so quick? They get arrested and then they're out back, they're back out protesting the same night. You know why? Because guess what? If you sat down with me and I had a picture of you tossing them out to a cocktail, I said, These are your choices. We're gonna call you tonight, you're gonna go to jail, and you're not coming out. Because we don't have to let you out. Now it's a federal offense. Or you can go out and call us tomorrow and tell us where the next meeting is. And then we'll meet every twice, two, three times a week. Send me all your emails or I'm going to tap into your, uh, you know, all your social media and get what I need to get. And there's a thousand of them that have gotten arrested that are working with the police right now that nobody even realizes. Oh, wow. I bet right. you. That's just, uh, it's my, I have no proof of this. But. And they're also, they're also complaining about facial recognition. Facial recognition's unfair, and I gave me. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything like, that gets you caught is unfair. You shouldn't have got that dragon tattoo on your forearm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you though that um, with with all these protests, and everything going on right now, you know, I, I always wonder if how everything is with social media that it's just more readily available, that it makes all these experiences so much more visceral. Like, do we really think it's it's like the worst it's ever been with a lot of this unrest? Because um, like in the 60s, unless there was someone there with a camcorder and you saw a week later when the film got developed, you weren't seeing it right away. You know, um, like you like with the Columbia, you know, riots. And like you say Columbia riots, but in my head, my mind's eye, I have a couple of still photos um, that seem kind of bad, but they're not moving. They're still photos as opposed to constant everyday streaming. Yeah. of you know some of this unrest we see now so it, it like bill said earlier we were discussing your book he said you know history repeats itself everything seems kind of cyclical you know which kind of I, I try not to get too high or too low with how things get um you know right now again kind of a low point but you know everyone says about morale and the department and everything i always try to you know stay you know upbeat you know and enjoy going to work every day stuff like that because um as bad as things are it I hope at least as far as the near future, this is the low point and it can only go up from here. You know, like Bill said earlier, when uh, your grandfather first came on and people said, you know, the job sucks, the job's dead. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was a big turnaround having to take a, a civil service exam 
and not, you know, getting a loan from some mobster or some politician and beating his pockets to come on the job to actually sit there and take an aptitude test and run laps. Yep. You know, I'm sure that was a big shakeup to guys in the department. The same way uh, when I came on in 2012, and there are people that'll say the last six years, there's been more people than the last 15 years as far as, um, you know, the, the these use of force reports we have to do now with uh, if there's no injury or complaint of pain, you still got to log it and document it. Um, the the it's body can It's taken. almost like showing you have to rat on yourself. <laughs> That's what they want you to do. <laughs> Report yourself because we can't, you know. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's like the, the TRIs, the, the threat resistance inquiry reports, when they first came out, got a lot of people shook up. Um, but then they made it where it's not also when you use any kind of force on a purpose on a perp uses the force on you. Um, so say a perp spits at you or a perp takes a swing at you and you just grab him, don't collar him. Like some cops, you know, a lot of them afraid of doing paperwork. I'm not always the best at paperwork, but that's one I'm always sure to sell out because you have to document these things. A lot of things that happen against us go undocumented and everything. Um, but like the same thing with the body cameras, you know, there was everyone was shook of them and like, oh, this sucks and this and that. And I'm like, I'm sure when they first came out with radios, people are like, oh, this sucks. Now the job's going to be able to buzz me wherever I am, <laughs> as opposed to going to the corner, to the call box. Now my boss going to be able to buzz me anytime. You know, this job sucks, whatever. So years from now, people going to look at the body camera the way we look at a radio. And I'm sure, um, I'm not trying to, you know, make a joke with you guys, but I'm sure uh, wearing vests became a lot more prevalent in your time on. And I'm sure a lot of old times. Like, about wearing a vest. I never wore that vest, I, especially <laughs> in the summer. I used to go to details in the summer and it was hot. I'm not because that vest, you go like this, you open it up, you can see the smoke, the, the yeah. heat coming out from underneath there. <laughs> and some, and I always used to tell people, dude, I don't I'd rather get shot right now than wear that freaking thing. <laughs> I'm not wearing I, it. I wore that vest no matter if it was 900 degrees, I wore that vest. Not me, because at the time I was big, I had the big pecs. I was like, fuck it, I'm bulletproof. He looked like he was wearing one. It'll bounce no, right off my chest. I want to bring up one thing too, because you talk about history of the job and in 1968 10 new york city cops were murdered in all yeah yeah and that's even to by today's standards that's outrageous that's that's unbelievable and it was from radical uh like sort of terrorist groups blm uh, B, you know bla the black liberation army yeah and you know that's never i don't think you've ever come close to that number ever again no, when, when something like that happens normally now, it's almost more like an EDP doing it than a, a true like radical. Like we saw with um, Lou and Ramos back in 2014 yes. and then uh, Officer Familia in the 4-6 in the 4th of July a couple of years ago. Yes. yes. You know, it's funny you talk about 68 because that's probably when my father was in his throes. I used to go, well, more than that too because I was already, I was, I was able to walk. I was probably like four. He was still going. And I remember going with my father in the subway and he used to hang up posters of Lenin, uh, <laughs> Vladimir Lenin, not John Lennon, Sean. <laughs> and uh, and the, he used to have the glue. Back then, this is what social media was. You know, the way you promoted your, your, your shows, you'd go and you'd hang up these posters. And I was his lookout. And I remember always being so scared because I didn't want my father to get locked up. And then Brian came by and saluted him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't him. And you know, it's funny, my father, my father on his deathbed, he said to me, he goes, uh, he says, I always hated the police, but I loved you. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Isn't that funny that he said that? 
<laughs> and let me get, uh, you know what I wanted to talk about? Oh, I just want to say this about morale, Sean. Uh, just keep this in mind. A lot of your coworkers look forward to, uh, to working with you because you have such a high spirit and you're, you know, you, you basically can dictate the morale there for a lot of them. Cause a lot of them, they, they don't have, you know, they don't have your, your, your enlightenment, you know, the way you see things. So always keep that in mind. You know, even if you're having a shitty day, there's probably people. I try, you know, especially with your guys' show here. Um, when I first started listening, I would tell people like, you know, like we think we're really in the doze of it right now. Uh, but you listen to like Ralph Friedman and, you know, some of these real old timers, you know, he was a, I don't know if Brian uh, heard about Friedman. He was a cop in the Bronx around the time your dad was in the 4-1. Yes. Um, they probably you know, know. Yeah, when things were, well, that's where Ralph was in anti-crime was the 4-1 a little bit after uh, Brian Zabba left. Um, so like, you, you, you gotta have a sense of perspective, you know, especially if you're someone who comes on this job and you're not from New York city, me and my, my family's been in the Bronx since 1938 when they came here from Ireland. Um, you know, same thing. We didn't go as North as Pearl river. We just, you know, settled, you know, on the Bronx Yonkers border, but, uh, you know, same thing. Uh, we've been here. So, you know, that's another thing I liked about your book as well was it was a history of the city and your family intertwines, you know, it was in the front row for a lot of it. And so you have a lot of people that come on the shop that, that lack that perspective. They're from Long Island, they're from upstate, they're from other countries. And they come here and they're like, wow, like this sucks. Like this is never going to get fixed. This is never going to get better. And I'm sure if, you know, I was a cop like Ralph Freeman back in 71, when there's, you know, six cops in one precinct, Lower Manhattan, six precincts, I believe, or the ninth, assassinated one year i'm like this is this is bananas what am i the fuck am i doing out here but sean what's what makes the job so much harder for you guys is the rules of engagement have changed so mm. much you know what i mean yes we could do things that would get you locked up today well he'd be in federal prison now yes and so <laughs> the rules of engagement today you have to be so much more restrained than cops back in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s even you know yeah. So it, it yeah, makes the job yeah. so much harder, and like there's cameras everywhere. That makes yeah, we wear them. Too, you know, but you're wearing it around. You're wearing that little thing around your uh, your chest, and yeah, nothing you do is isn't recorded. Well, you know what we got. Why don't we uh, find out what we can find uh, uh, Brian's books and uh, hear what he, uh, some more about what he's working on now. Um, where can we find the the books if you've written? Um, and stuff like that. Do you have a website? Is that don't I don't? But Amazon has all ha, Amazon has all the books, so you can you could go on Amazon. It'd be great. Uh, we could get and, it for free if Sean has an extra copy. He sent me one. Well, you know, it's it's funny with that copy I sent you, Bill. So when the History Channel special came out, you know, I'd watch it, and um, a little while later, my dad had seen it in Barnes and Noble, and this is around two thousand two, two thousand three, around there, right? It came out. I yeah. was in like middle school. Um, so my dad got me the book. I had the hard copy. Um, some years later, uh, around the time I was getting ready to come on the job, you know, I was thinking like, oh, I, I couldn't find the book anywhere. Uh, so I ordered another one. And that's when I sent the bill. When I ended up moving out of my parents' house, I found it. So that's a copy I have now. But I had another one, so I sent it to Bill. But uh, I tell you, I, I speak at uh, career days in my old high school sometimes. And I, I do tell them, you know, if anyone's really interested in it to get a real idea of you know, what it's like to go through everything, even though some of these stories are from the 50s and 60s, a lot of it is very applicable to today. And I recommend your book a lot. So hopefully if you see a spike in sales around December every year, that's for me. Title I'm going to send my copy to Mark because he never reads shit. 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know, watch the movie, Mark. I will. Well, no, definitely going to do that. But it actually, it sounds like something I'd be interested in reading. Um, I, I like the, I like this, this, the sound of it. Um, I definitely, I definitely want. I'm going to check it out. I, I just, I, I like those type of stories. You know what's an interesting thing that I just want to touch quickly upon, Brian? And you're, you're, you're a, a writer for hire as a ghostwriter, right? Yeah, I do. I do a lot of. So it. if someone thinks they got a great book, they can hire you as their writer. Yes, they can, and uh, I'm I'm very busy at that part of my life. I I'm, I do mostly political books, and as you might imagine, the political uh, climate today, a lot of people are writing books. So I have I'm um, very busy in that regard. Wow! Yeah. How does that work? How does the ghostwriter? Well, I actually work with a publisher. I work with one um, one of the bigger publishers, and uh, I have a relationship, a business relationship, with a um, senior editor over there. And, she gets a lot of these books and uh, you know, it's people that are, people want to read about, but they don't know how to write. So they need to hire a writer. And so basically you, you go there and you talk to them. I interview they them. tell you the stories and then you'll, you'll change their story into something, uh, you know, uh, put it on paper basically. I'll right? put, uh, yeah, I just put it on paper basically. Do they get a chance to read it first and approve it or? Oh, of course. Oh, these are, uh, I'm, I've been very late. These are very high. I can't talk about who I wrote for, but they're very high profile. Uh, political people. So they, not only do they read it, they have lawyers read it, they have uh, assistants read it, they have people in there, whatever. It's very, it's vetted very, very. Uh, now, do you write it all for the New York Times still or no? No, I haven't written for the Times in a long time. Um, Good, because I, I find their shit to be such fucking fiction. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm happy about write. that, yeah. The guy wrote a story the other day about the Gilgo murders. You would have think they solved the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, way the headline was, nothing's changed. Well, okay. the one thing about, one thing I knew about working at Elaine's, and I have friends that work for the Times, so I'm not going to talk down about it, but when, when I was at Elaine's, you knew that the, the beat reporters for the tabloid papers beat the ass off the guys from the Times. The guys from the Times were behind the door. They were always got the secondhand information. The guys from the Post and the News, they were in the trenches. They did it, and they, they uh, you know, they knew how to tell the story, so... Uh, yeah. So, but you know, it's uh, it's all it's all show business today. Do you about. teach a class on writing? I did. I taught. I taught for a while at Fordham, um, and uh, I taught at the, in the CUNY system. I taught at um, a couple of the um, um, uh, uh, Kingsborough Community College. I, I taught at Queens College. I taught, you know, as an adjunct, not not on not on staff, but as an adjunct. I taught. How, give us if the, if you. Can... Before we close, give us, a, after all these years of experience, give us the, some good advice for the young writer out there. Um, tell us, how, how do we finish? Is there something about finishing? You know, even if it's shit, finish the freaking thing, right? And then work on it again, right? And make it a little bit better. But you got to finish it first, right? Well, it's not, it, first of all, it's not as hard as people think. The reason I became a writer one night, I was at a lands and, and a very famous writer was sound, was absolutely passed out in his Ville Parmesan, drunk out of his mind. And I said to myself, if that guy can write a book, I can write a book. So from that moment on, I, I started to write. And the other thing is, is that you, uh, it's discipline, man. It's just about discipline. I get up, I do, I, I, I have the same routine I've, I've had since I started writing. I get up first thing in the morning, it's the first thing I do. I get a big cup of coffee, maybe a bowl of cereal or something, but I'm at the computer as soon as I, and I'm up early, 
you know, I'm, I'm up like with the milkmen. So from five thirty, six o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning, the phone isn't ringing. Uh, the emails aren't beeping. Nobody's, nobody's, uh, nobody's trying to text me or anything. You're talking two hours, three hours, four hours, now, solid three hours. And that's all you need. I mean, it's not like I don't do anything the rest of the day, the research, I do interviews. I do a, a lot of stuff, but the creative part of, about it, the craft part about it, sitting in front and putting the story down is the first thing in the morning, first thing in the morning without question. That's what I do. And uh, do that's you, how you finish it. You know, that's how you finish a book. In between projects or on a day that you're, uh, you're dry, there's nothing coming up. Are, they, are you doing writing exercises? Are you doing the three pages? I used to do it. I, ah, very good. Yeah. Well, I, I write to, too. Yeah, I used to do that. I used to do the artist's way. Uh, uh, writing, uh, you know, that's where you get up in the morning and you just write the first thing that comes into your mind for three, three pages longhand. And it's, it's a great tool. I did it for years. I yeah, it gets you warmed up. It gets you. Those are days that you don't have anything ready to go to. Before yeah. you finish the three pages, you'll you'll already be on your way to some thought. Exactly. Exactly. Good for you. Yes, I I did that a lot, and uh, you know I haven't done it in a while. I've been you know I've been too busy. You know I work I, I work seven days a week. I really do. You know I work I work every day. I mean I take time off when I have to take time off and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. but my priority is uh, to sit in front of the computer and write. So that's and, and organizing, um, you know, comics have yeah, a way of not, writing shit on a little easy. piece there of are, there are, there, there are, Today, there are a lot of word processing systems. There's a thing called Scrivener, uh, and it's uh, puts, uh, it's kind of complicated, but it, it, once you get it, once you get it down, it, it, you know, it has access to all of the things you're writing and it, it, you have the ability to switch things around and to work on two projects, two pages at once and two chapters at once and things like What's that. What's the name of that? Scrivener, S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R, -E -E Scrivener. How much do they pay you for shouting them out? <laughs> they should you know i paid a lot of money for it no it's not that much i think it's like 79 dollars for the for the for the uh, program or something download it so um but uh, and but there's other ones too mark there's uh, ones that have come out since then that i think are easier you might just want to google up you know um uh, those kind of yeah, I, I use final draft um well that's great i mean for uh screenplays right yeah 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 and then for the other stuff i just use word you know um yeah. But you know, you have a tendency you write one thing on a yellow pad, another thing at work on a note, you know, and it's you got to kind of sort of uh, you know always sit down and and put them all in one place because these these thoughts you lose them, and then before you know it, you pick it up uh, a year later, you're like ah oh, man, I could have used that in that line, those 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 words. Um, I, I love words. I'm a, I, you know, joke writing is all about words, a conservation sure. of words. I'm sure. You know what I'm saying? And I listen to words all the time and, and I'm always changing a word. And when you land on the right word, you're like, ah, I got it. That's beautiful. You know, because it has to sound good in your own voice. Can I put you on the spot? Yeah. What's one of your favorite jokes? Oh, I, it's, um, well, I'll give you an easy one. Um, well, I remember I was sitting with Lisa Lampanelli who wound up becoming kind of sort of famous in comedy for a while. And uh, I used to do a joke, like as soon as I came out, because I was a lot thinner, believe it or not, even more handsome than I am now. <laughs> and I used to say, I know what you're thinking. Wow, this guy really does well with women, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I used to have a, I have a, I, and then it was a whole thing about how many girls, like, and then I, I have a strategy that never fails. I'm not that picky. 
<laughs> so, like Lisa would all during this uh, right a little writers meeting, she was like, she was like, I'm not so picky. And I'm like, man, but that, I always kept, I'm not that picky. Cause for me, that word sounds more natural. But for her, so sometimes it's like just a, a subtle thing, but out of my mouth coming out, it's, it's important that, that it sounds that way, you know? So, uh, yeah. So my, my, my hat's off to you. I have a, I have a friend who's, his name is Bill Sheft. And Bill was a, a writer for Letterman for a thousand years. And he is, he is so um, learned in what you're talking about and putting words on uh, in order on a page to make that funny. It's just incredible to me. It's like, yeah. genius. It's you spend a lot of time during the day, just <laughs> mixing yeah. the words up. Yeah. No, 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 no. And a lot of times when I used to work as a tutor teaching a young comics, I used to tell them, say it exactly like this. Then I go watch him on stage and they screw it up. And I'm like, didn't I tell you exactly what to say? Because people don't realize you had one word. Uh, you're expanding it. You're killing the beat. You're killing them. You're, it's, it's, it's so funny how just one word yeah. makes a huge difference. Yeah. And with the timing, with the beat and everything. And uh, It's like music. It's the same thing. Would say? It's like music. You got to match up the rhythm with everything else. Yeah, people get develop their own style, their own cadence, their yeah. own pattern of talking. That's what they they mean by um, find your voice. And I always told young comics, listen, you're going to find your voice, but be funny in the meantime. So you start getting paid. <laughs> and one time I bumped into a comic and it was like 10 years later. He goes, you know, I thought you were messing with me that day that you said be funny in the meantime. But you were right. It's like, you know, you can find your voice, but don't waste the audience time trying to talk, pontificate. Be yeah. funny. And then your, your voice will come, you know? So I look forward to reading for the book. We're already at an hour and a half. And believe it or not, I have a job to go get to right now. This is great. Thanks a lot, guys. That's why we did the early show, you know? <laughs> yeah, I had a, I'm doing overtime tonight because I'm the, I'm like, all my jobs are canceled. The comedy is, is uh, there's really no comedy right now, stand-up comedy. That's I true. work in the police academy as an actor. I was doing training and it got defunded. So... Yeah, those people that defunded the police, they fucked you. I know, <laughs> I know. But they also screwed all these other guys that were just like legit actors. Yeah. But at least they're getting unemployment, those people. Well, now it's only down to like the three and change. It's not the extra 600. So, um, man, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited that we had you on the show. This was this was a, a really great one. I love I love picking your brain. And uh, we, we, we want to welcome you back, man. We, I'd love to have you back on the show again. And you could cut on the progress on this book. Um, you know, you could feel free and we'll, we'll help you pitch it. You know what I'm saying? Even though it's about firemen. <laughs> so we're not doing any fireman show. On <laughs> I got nothing to He's writing a cookbook. <laughs> you know, they want to have more police off the cuff. Let them be firemen putting out fires. That'll yeah. be the fireman podcast. <laughs> so oh before we go i just want to give a shout out to uh we got a new patreon customer he signed up for uh dipped in butter <laughs> I his love name that. is uh l uh period john this old man so thank you for uh for taking part in our you patreon know, Mark, we're, we're limping along with patreon what do we got 30 now 
30 Patreon. Yeah, listen, if you get one, we've been at it for a month and we got 30. So if you get one a day, that's good. That's, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you get? Listen, we're, we're, we're plucking away here. Times are tough and we still have people doing the right, you know, uh, digging deep into their pockets. And we're going to keep, this is a great interview well, Mark, right here. I don't here. know if you know, but someone on Anchor, where we were on nine or 10 listening sites for podcasts, someone who just did a real crime episode with us is, is paying us $9.99 a month on Anchor, which is free. But mm -hmm. in essence, he's given us 10 bucks a month. Well, that was great. Give Thank him a you shout very out. Much. <laughs> Um, Muldoon, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, so to uh, for for those out there, we have uh, we have our Patreon. Uh, we're trying to uh, you know make this show grow. We want to have some merch that we can uh, we can give away to our Patreon customers, and that's coming in the future. But please subscribe to our Patreon. We have three tiers. We have the bucket, which is seven dollars a month. We have polished bills rack, which is nine dollars <laughs> a month, and then we have uh, dipped in butter. Which is the the eleventh? Uh, <laughs> That's month. the premier one because you know what it's like to dip them in butter. We have fun. great content. Bill's doing it. Bill's doing a true crime. I have my one-on-one -on -one interviews. I just interviewed um, um, Vicky Cooperman, who's a fantastic comedian, actress, writer, but she also got robbed at gunpoint. That right in Midtown Manhattan at dusk, walking her dog. Uh, by six or eight kids on, on the city bikes that they stole at gunpoint, put the gun right to her head. You hear the whole st harrowing story. Um, she's got great advice for women walking around the city right now. And uh, please join our Patreon. You can check that out. And uh, Brian, what, what, could, what, what else can we say? Except thank uh, you. I, you. I think you, you summed it up. You, sure, you treated me great. It was such a pleasure to be on here meeting all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. We, for we always out. warn people oh, to come on. Don't think you're going to be treated with like white gloves. We're going to slap the shit out of you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was an honor. Hey, you know, I used to work at 60 East End. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I used to be a doorman there before I became a cop. As a matter of fact, I was working one night. They always told you, don't quit your job until you, you're officially sworn in. So I got the call. They found me at work and it says, report to Brooklyn Tech High School at midnight and to be sworn in. And I went and then I called back the midnight guy. I said, yeah, I quit. Went <laughs> 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 in this word and I had a call. Everybody was by the phones there at Brooklyn Tech. Yeah, I quit. Tell that guy to go fuck himself. <laughs> it's just a, for, as a matter of full disclosure, I don't live on East End Avenue. I live on 89th <laughs> Street. It's a big difference. <laughs> no, but you, you, you're in the area. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah, but All this right, is great. So, Thank um, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. And Bill. keep doing God's work out there, Sean. Keep Thank the morale you. up, man. They need you. Brian. All right. Because Sean, Our maybe you take a lot of overtime. You could even be dipped in butter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. I'm on behalf of uh, police, uh, midday police off the uh, cuff or lunchtime police off the cuff, man. Thank you guys for tuning in. And we look forward to our next episode, which is going to be this Thursday night, where we're going to have, uh, we're switching gears a little bit. We're going to have uh, Tom Delgado. He does uh, city tours, and he's going to give us an insight on all the people that get robbed on a daily basis now um, <laughs> in New York City. He's a tour guide and a stand-up comic, and he's got a law degree, just in case none of that shit works out for him, right? <laughs> all right. Thank you, you so much. I'll talk See to you, you guys. Later. Thanks for having me on. Later.